Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Product Coalition podcast. Uh, I'm really excited to um, have a guest on the show, he's a good friend of mine, Rob Seddon, here in Melbourne. Uh, to get us going, I just want to give a shout out to um, Proud Mary Coffee for hosting us from a location perspective. Uh, Proud Mary is a speciality coffee roaster, cafe, coffee educator and retailer based here in Melbourne, Australia and over in Portland, Oregon in the USA. Uh, I'm personally been fortunate to be um, sort of help out with, with the Proud Mary story, so a big thanks to all of the Proud Mary Coffee team here in Melbourne and over in Portland. To find out more about Proud Mary, if you're here in Australia, it's proudmarycoffee.com.au or in the US, it's proudmarycoffee.com. Personally, now I'd recommend actually get down to the cafe in Portland or Collingwood here in Melbourne um, to experience Proud Mary coffee and everything Proud Mary. Uh, Off the menu, my favourite would be the potato hash. It's awesome. Um, Rob, thanks for joining me on, on the, this episode. Today we're going to talk about design in product. Um, before we jump into that, do you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself, mate, and y- your journey, career journey, life journey so life far journey. <laughs> in a few minutes? Yeah, sure. Um, so like you, I'm an Englishman. I've been here 10 years in, uh, in Melbourne. My, my background has been people, quite broadly. did a psychology degree. I've always worked with people. I don't mean that in, you know, literally other people, but I've always been interested in people, behavior, motivation, and all of that. Worked in learning and development for quite a few years, instructional design, literally designing instructional material, so um, so training material, and then also as a facilitator, running workshops and, and developing e-learning and all of that. And in ooh, probably about six years ago, that took me into, or I, I discovered human-centered design, uh, and then that took me down the path of design more more broadly in terms of experience design and now service design which is what I'm doing at the moment awesome and that obviously big compliment to the to the rest of your background um, all the way to the start there all being about humans and how they interact mm. with products and services before we jump into designing product this is the Melbourne series so um, let, let's go through your your Melbourne life so fav- favorite tea or coffee joint in Melbourne see I am not a huge coffee person. The best coffee, I think, is is the one I make at home on my little stovetop thing. Nice. But if pushed, around the corner from where we used to work together, there was a little place called Patricia's, which yep. is a typical Melbourne back alley. You've got to sort of go past the bins to find it, and people are sat outside on uh, on crates. But the best thing I like about it is it takes all the the fanciness away from coffee. They don't do lattes. They don't do you know, all, all these other um, types of coffee. Yep. They do black and they do white. Right. And they do it very, very well. So nice. that's my favourite. That's your one. And what about for a bit of lunch in the CBD? Where would you go? Well, where would we go, Jay? This yeah. is what we've done many times. <laughs> you know the answer to this, burgers. I love I love the uh, the burger movement that's been going on in Melbourne for yep. the last few years. I can't turn a burger down. So yep. anywhere in the CBD, um, you'll find a good burger joint. There's 8-Bit, there's Huckster Burger, there's Royal Stack, Royal, where yep. we used to go. Yep. Um, so yeah, I can't look past a good burger and cheese. Burgers are the new coffee for Melbourne, I feel. I think they could be, yeah. Could Maybe be. burgers and coffee, that's the <laughs> that's the way. There's an, there's an idea. <laughs> um, best tram route? Best tram route. Now, I'm a cyclist, so I cycle oh, everywhere, so okay. I don't do a huge amount of public transport, mm. but um, I live in the northern suburbs where there's the 86 tram. Right, okay. Uh, yep. I think Brad, yep, Brad, Brad mentioned, yep. which is an experience. Yep. Um, and very entertaining, 
But now I'm a little bit older and I've got young kids. For me, it's more about accessibility. Right. And again, being a designer, I've always got my designer hat on. Yep. So a tram that is accessible, low floors, a tram that is separated from traffic. Again, yep. being, a, being a cyclist as well, you don't really want to be crossing tram lines. So I've got the 11 that runs right. pretty much at the end of my road. That is easy. You can get a tram yep. on and off it. Um, it. It opens not into traffic, which yep. is, you know, if anyone... Especially with kids. In Melbourne, yeah. Yeah, sometimes they open the doors and cars are flying past. So yeah. I would say the 11 then. Awesome. Um, Favourite meetup or conference in Melbourne? So there's a service design conference called Service Design Now, right. or SD Now. Yep. And that's been going for four years. Right. There's, one, there's one coming up in, in November. And that was where I kind of found my people. When I, when I right, discovered okay. human-centred design and experience design and service design, I went along to one of those. And there were people like me. There were a lot of people that came from a design background, you know, an academic design background. But there was also a lot of people that kind of stumbled into design and became designers from other disciplines. And it was brilliant just learning about how other people did what they did and, and how they brought their prior knowledge into design. I found that really interesting. Some really good speakers. And the best thing about it is the social side of it afterwards. Generally, people go for a few beers and, and you often learn more in the pub afterwards than yep. you do at the conference. Yep. Um, so that's been really good. Fantastic. And I know you've got your own event coming up as well. Do you want to ch- chat us through a little bit about that? Yeah, well, that's that's born off the back of, of what I just said about the fact that, you know, you often learn more in the pub afterwards. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a guy, a good friend of mine uh, and yours called David Blumenstein, who's an amazing cartoonist and illustrator. Indeed. He he just had the same, same challenge, identified the same problem that, yes, we went to a lot of design conferences, but it was really, we learned more from people that weren't necessarily designers, other people who were kind of on the fringes of design doing some pretty cool stuff. So we've got a conference, it's sort of a conference, it's going to be pretty small and, and tight, um, at the, on the 6th of October in Brunswick, it's called Cross Discipline, yep. X Discipline. And what we've got is we've got a, a politician's chief of staff who works and tries to uh, influence social change. Wow. We've right. got uh, an actor from Neighbours. So for the overseas listeners, Neighbours is a... Soap. It's a soap opera, yeah. It's probably more popular in the UK than it is yeah, in Australia. Possibly. But we've got a Neighbours actor who does behavioural science. We've got a philosopher who's helping solve problems in the justice system. Really wow. interesting, smart people that do interesting cool things in a slightly different discipline which is designers it's all about joining the dots and and seeing things differently so we're going to put them in a room we're going to put a bunch of people in a room and just have a bit of a a chat um, and see what comes out of it i think it'll be an interesting day sounds really interesting actually yeah fantastic fantastic so let's jump into um today's topic designing product um so rob for you what is the role of design in product (laughs) well this, this is something I've been grappling with and it's, and it's quite raw and unformed in my own head because okay. although I've worked as a designer for you know, probably 10 years or more now, my most recent role was more of a product role and I've kind of seen design and the, the value of design from the other side of the coin. Um, so where, where design or certainly human-centered design is all about making sure we're solving the right problem, making sure we're creating something that has value for end users... Um, really, I found that the crux of it, the really important thing, is being able to communicate the value of what we're doing. Because you can you can do all this stuff and you can um, you can build all these amazing products, but if they're not if they don't have value and you're not able to communicate that value as a designer, mm-hmm. it just gets 
dropped, you know, a product manager or a developer will just go off and do something different. So I see so many designers, and I've been guilty of it myself, designing cool things and doing all this great research and, um, you know, building artifacts, uh, your personas and your journey maps and all of that, but not really doing a great job of communicating it. So for me... The, the role of designing is being able to communicate the, the needs, the pain points of the users to ensure we're solving the right problem, to ensure we're building the right thing mm-hmm. before we start figuring out how to build the thing right. Right. On the, in this problem space, h- how, do you, how do you learn uh, or make judgments around whether you spend too much time in a problem space? How, how do you know how much time to spend in the problem space? Um, how do you make that call? So I've, I've been on projects and I've seen it done where you do too much research and I've been on projects where you've done too little research. And there's, there's a term called saturation, which is where you're no longer learning anything new. You get to that saturation point, you're hearing things repeated and you're like, yeah, we, we kind of know all that. So technically, I guess that saturation point is where you've done enough research. But what I find is that all that research, all that understanding of the problem, which is absolutely where you should start, is only done at the start. It's only done at the beginning. And then at a point, at that saturation point, you kind of think, all right, we get it. We understand the problem. Now let's solve it. And there's no looping back. There's no checking to say, well, has this problem changed? You know, are we solving it the right way? Have, has something else come along in the meantime and and solved the problem in a different way? Uh, Do people want something different? So the key thing for me is not about how much or, um, or, or how much time you spend solvi- uh, understanding the problem. It's more about integrating that work, that research that you do to understand the problem throughout the design process and throughout the product management and the product build process. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of a long answer, but yeah. that, that's how I would uh, and do in it. The, in when it comes to understanding the problem and designing the solution, the... The artifacts can range massively in terms of the amount of time to invest in them, um, the amount of polish that goes on them, um, and the amount of iterations they they go through. So, um, how how useful are design artifacts? Um, And how do you know you're producing artifacts that are going to have meaning and impact to the product overall? Um, Versus doing, for instance, a persona, just because we always do personas. How do you make those calls? Yeah, well, this this is things, again, that I've seen from a design point of view, and I've invested a lot of time and effort building personas, building journey maps, building blueprints, and thinking, yep, these are going to be fantastic. These are going to change the world. In my recent roles, uh, where I've had more experience on product, I realized that they're often too shiny. They're often too well-made, too well-designed. And by that, I mean kind of visually designed. They're almost like works of art. You could put them up on a wall and frame them. They yep. look beautiful, but they're, they're inaccessible. They're kind of laminated and, and, as I say, shiny, and people kind of can't attach to them. They kind of slip off them a little bit. So, again, it comes back to the first thing I was saying about communication, ensuring that these things, these artifacts are communicated, mm-hmm. um, not just presented, not just one way, so that there's a two-way flow that people understand how to interact with them, how to get to that that richness of information that all these things are, are built on. There's so much depth to these things, but if you just look at you know the bit of paper it's printed on, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get below the surface. So I think they can be very useful, but if 
a designer just presents them and walks away, they end up in a bottom drawer. Uh, or they end up on a wall and framed and people point at them and say, we've done personas, we've done design, we are human-centered. Yep. Um, whereas in actual fact, they're never, they're never used or they're, they're stuck in the bottom of the drawer. Um, so that, I think, is where, um, yes, they have value and yes, they absolutely should be part of the process, but they're the kind of thing that I think the people that you're handing over to, the product, product managers and the developers, should be part of the process. Involve them in user research. Get them out on the front line talking to, to people that have the problem so that when they see that manifesting in a journey map or a persona, mm-hmm. they understand where it's come from. Right. Okay. I think what's interesting for me there is is the medium the designer chooses to, to share what they're learning. Um, so if I think about a laminated A0 poster that tells an end-to-end journey map, as a as a stakeholder, um, that's going to feel like almost it's done because it's yep. laminated. It's it's stuck behind a piece of plastic, as opposed to a journey map, which is fifteen post its wide. Um, and I feel like I could maybe shift a few around or contribute. Um, so I think that that medium um, yeah. uh, really has had an impact in in some of my personal experiences. Completely agree. As as designers, um, quite a lot of people are a bit nervous about presenting their work quite rough. Um, you know, post-it notes, sketches, and all of that, um, because a lot of a lot of people, falsely or not, think that the value in a design is that polished end product, and and clients won't want to see something that's rough and and raw. But the more polished and the more done something is, the less likely people are to interact with it. And you want people to interact with it. Mm-hmm. You want them to come along to your personas and go, actually, that doesn't feel right. Rub that bit out and write this bit in and and iterate and change it, because otherwise. The the thing that you've built the artifact artifact is it like that you don't you don't yep. change it um, and there was a there's a really good um, article there's a there's a lady called Sarah Drummond a Scottish lady who uh, I think she owns the business called Snook S N double O K she wrote a really good article about the what not the how of service design because she says we get so obsessed with tools mm. and methods and all of this we actually forget what we're doing, why we're doing it. Um, and I, I, it just, it resonated. So I'd invite people to, to have a read of that um, because, yeah, it, it, building those things is all well and good, but if they are it, if they are the outcome that you, yep. that that's it, your role as a designer is done and you just walk away, then you won't be having any impact. Yep. And that's, you ask any designer what they want to do is to create impact. Yeah, I think um, some experiences I've had that, that align with this as well is when contractors or external agencies are producing artifacts. That's when I've, I've tended to see more of the highly polished um, artifact creation. Um, and I just wonder, is that then about trying to sell you the solution in the artifact as a, as a contractor or as, as an agency versus internal teams working on problems and solutions tend to lower the fidelity and have a bit more of a conversational approach because at the end of the day, they've not got to send you an invoice for, for the work. Have you experienced that? What's your yep. thoughts? Yeah, completely agree. Completely yeah. agree. Um, because you're right, you're, you're bringing in a probably quite expensive design consulting firm, and if they leave you with a bunch of post-it notes, you may feel shortchanged. The problem is if design firms keep doing that, keep producing the shiny, the laminated stuff, uh, and it ends up in a bottom drawer, are they going to get hired again? You know, they might they might feel that they've done a good job, and they might the client might feel they've got something in terms of uh, an output at the time. But a year later, five years later, when 
their outputs haven't really been interacted with or, or used, mm. and that's they're not going to get brought back. And that's where things like human-centered design risk being a trend, risk being yep. something that is going to be passed in a few years and um, potentially forgotten about or, or superseded by something else. So I think maybe design firms need to be a little bit braver and look beyond you know, what they got brought in for, which is often, mm-hmm. can you build us a journey map, Calgary? Can you build us a blueprint? And start asking why. What is what is the outcome that you want this blueprint to solve? Um, that way, I think they they deliver much more than just an artifact. Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, I think that you know, there's a big mindset difference between doing a piece of work to to get an invoice out um, versus being heavily invested in the outcome of that product and the actual product metrics, um, not not just artifacts artifacts that need to be used simply for rationale along the way. Yeah. Um, yep. uh, what, what, what's, what's some good or bad experiences, lessons learned around working with product managers from a designer's side of the story that you've, you've had? Lessons learned. Um, again, that, that handover that I talk about, about um, a designer's role stopping and a product manager's role starting, it just creates problems uh, unless the product manager has been involved earlier on in the piece I, uh, they just they're not going to get it um, they're not going to understand what's been done they'll they'll really just be starting from scratch especially if designer like you say is a design firm or a consultancy that's now walked away you don't have that uh, option to ask them any questions so for me it's it's kind of like a sliding scale if at the beginning a designer is 100% and a product manager is is zero there shouldn't be um, a kind of hard stop. This should be a sliding scale. A designer, eventually their role goes down, you know, 100%, 90, 80, and at some point it's at 50. At the other end, the product manager starting at zero should be ramping up to fill the gap. So when a designer's at 90%, a product manager's at 10%, and in the middle you've got that nice 50-50 where they're overlapped. And, you know, the product manager should be if not out there doing the user interviews, they should be involved in the synthesis of those interviews and the formulation of the insights because um, then they get the depth, then they get the stories, then they get the the human side of what is being designed, which is which is key. Otherwise, all they've got is a, a report or an artifact to go off that, as I say, it, it, it lacks that depth. Yep. So lessons learned, I guess, would be less reports, less slide decks, more involvement, collaboration, communication between the people involved. And I think that lends itself to roles being less important. It's more about the skills that people can bring. So yes, I'm a designer, but I know a bit about product management. I can talk, you know, lean, agile. Mm. I'm not an expert in those things, but I I get them. Um, So just blending the skills a little bit and getting the right people to do the right job at the right time rather than I am only this and I will only operate within this box and when I hit the limit of my box then I hand over to somebody else Um, that kind of overlap I think is 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 the way forward yeah I think it's the way things have got to be done in all roles Um, can can I ask Rob uh, on a day-to-day basis you've got a whole set of toolboxes when it comes to understanding people and problems and solutions etc what's the one method or play that you just love out of everything you could get up and do in the morning as a designer what what do you enjoy the most the one method um 
I I love the user research side of things. Okay. I really enjoy, and, and I know that's a broad, that's not really a method, um, but actually going out there, talking to the people that have the problem. So the qualitative side of that research. The qualitative yep. research, yeah. The one-to-one, face-to-face conversations, ideally in their context, in their home. Right. Um, them telling you about the issue or the problem or whatever it is that they that they have, um, that's that's gold. That's right. that's to be honest, that's um, that's the reason I got into this in the first place. Right. And some of the projects I've worked on, like I've worked with Guide Dogs Victoria, going and talking to people who are blind or have low vision and learning about how they navigate the world was amazing. C- can you Absolutely share? Is awesome. there anything you can share? A, a big learning, maybe in that. Yeah. Place? So a, a huge learning for me was that I approached this about um, their challenges. So one of my questions, right. naively, was about, so what challenges do you have, you know, because you can't see? And someone answered that by saying, I don't have challenges. It isn't a challenge for me. If I woke up every day thinking that life was a challenge, I'd be quite depressed. Mm. Um, it, it just is. I just can't see. Um, what I learned very quickly is people can do amazing things when one thing is taken away from them, when one thing is diminished. Um, I mean, we had to set up the room acoustically because right. obviously people could, blind people can often hear a lot better than a sighted person. Right. There was a gentleman I met who was blind and had actually resisted a lot of help from Guide Dogs Victoria in terms of canes or a guide dog because he wanted to develop skills himself. So he could echolocate. He could click ah. and he would be able to tell that there's someone sat opposite me. He even said there's a there's a mobile phone over there on the table. Now it was actually a wallet, but I gave him, you know, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. Oh, <laughs> well, it was amazing. amazing. So yeah, that that you know, don't assume yep. that that life is a challenge for people just because they are different to you. That was amazing uh, for me. Like the, the the value that you've talked about there, I find it almost impossible you'd ever get that out of quantitative surveys on websites and forms and email surveys and stuff like that. That really underlines um, how to create empathy um, in a face-to-face situation and the, and the benefit of that empathy. Yeah. And then the challenge is how do you convey that empathy to the mm. people that are designing a product to help these people? Because all the stories and all the, the richness that I got from these one-on-one interviews, it's really hard to put that into a report or a persona or a journey map. It kind of it makes it bland. It, yep. it kind of flattens it a little bit. Yep. Um, so that's that's the challenge that I'm grappling with at the moment. Right. Uh, and as I say, it's quite raw. I'm still trying to figure it all out. But mm. how do you how do you get all that good stuff yeah. and, and convey people's frustrations and make sure you're delivering the kind of outcomes that will mm. solve for them? It was fascinating about that particular experience that you've just shared. There is you'll carry that around with you all of your life. Um, that that learning. Um, but if it was up on a wall in a two-dimensional poster, it would be really hard for someone else to carry around that learning for the rest of their life. Yeah, Thank I, you c- for I can still picture him sat across the table for me. And what was really interesting was when he was doing this, when he was demonstrating his echolocation, his wife was with him in the room because we realised quite early on we could learn as much from people's carers uh, as right. we could from, from blind people themselves. So his wife came along, obviously to help him get to the location where we were and, and all of that. But when he was doing it, he demonstrated this echolocation and she was sat next to him. He was like, she said, Richard, stop, stop showing off. Because this is obviously something right. that he's demonstrated a few times. Right. And it was lovely. It was this amazing skill. But she'd obviously seen it so many times. It's like, you know, a yeah. husband yeah. boring people in the pub with the same old story. Uh, but that, yeah, that stays with me. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. 
in that instance, you're learning about not not just the problem space, but the, as you said earlier, the, the context, the life that the problem exists in of a real real person. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to think holistically, and mm. that's you know that's what service design is. You're not just looking at one interaction or one touch point. You've got to think completely holistically about s- how a service is looked for. Um, you know, people research, find a service, how they interact with it, how they tell their friends about it. It's it's end yeah. to end. Fantastic. So, so Rob, what, what, what do you think the, the future? What, what, what can designers and product people do together better going forward in the future? I think it's that, it's that collaboration, like we talked about earlier. It's that blending. Um, yes, you will always have core design skills like um, you know, interaction design or visual design. And yes, you will always have core product management skills like prioritization or, or business models. But it's that it's that blend, it's that coming together for things like user research, designing and developing personas, uh, building uh, and carrying out experiments, validating, creating an MVP. That's where we've got to play together a little bit better, I think. Um, yeah, well, why not? Yep. Why not? Because they're both, like I say, rather than roles, it's about skills. They're skills yep. that a designer can do. They're absolutely skills that a product manager can do. And that gives us... Um, that gives us a, a much better platform for designing products that will will solve the right problems. Fantastic. This has been great. Um, it's, it's great to talk about design in product um, in a pure 25-minute session like this. So thanks, Rob, for uh, taking us through this today. Thank you. You had fun? I have, yeah. Yeah, no, it's been good. Thank you, everyone, for, for listening as well to this episode of the Product Coalition podcast. Um, if you want to know more about Product Coalition, visit productcoalition.com. Com. A big shout out to uh, our location sponsor, Proud Mary. Um, and we're up here at the Collingwood Coffee College, which is part of Proud Mary. Thanks for hosting us today. And uh, look forward to sharing more stories with you all uh, very soon. Thank you. Thank you.